pointing. So Genesis 20 is a um, interesting story, to say the least. And it's not interesting in the sense that it's hard to understand whether there's something miraculous or incredibly miraculous that happens. It's interesting in that where it falls in the story of Abraham. Because it's almost, Abraham's almost like a runner running a race around a track. And in chapter 20, he's in the last lap. If you remember, God has promised Abraham long, 10 years prior, that he was going to have a son by Sarah. And then in chapter 18, God comes to him and God tells him, by this time next year, Sarah's going to have, you're going to have a son by Sarah. This is the, around the birth, around this time is when your son Isaac is going to be born. And so Abraham knows he only has to wait one more year. Of course, in 19, you get a little bit of break. You have that Sodom and Gomorrah story. But then you hit 20, and it's almost like he's a runner on the last lap, and he's doing something that you could be disqualified for. And you're going, dude, <laughs> you're almost there. You've waited 10 years to get to the end of this finish line, and you're about to, right here, right at the end, when the moment's the crucial moment, you're about to drop the baton. And he, incredibly, almost after you have this huge part where he looks so righteous in 18, he kind of relapses back to where he was in chapter 12. He relapses back to his, the way he was acting at the very beginning of his walk with the Lord and what the Bible is recording. And so you have uh, this story that's smack in the middle. And... We'll read the beginning in a second, but just to kind of set the tone. So, Abraham has told Sarah that everywhere they go, not to say that she is his husband, but instead to say that, I'm sorry, she is his wife, but instead to tell everybody that she is his sister. And that had already caused some problems in chapter 12. In chapter 12, they go to Egypt, the Pharaoh takes Sarah for his wife, but before anything can happen, he realizes God sends a plague. They realize what happened, and Abraham is chastised for doing that. It turns out that he's, he's rebuked for lying about that, and they're released. But apparently, even though he experienced that in that chapter 12, him and Sarah still had this little habit going on. They still had, it was almost like a, a sinful idol, a sinful habit of themselves. This little thing that they were trying to do to protect themselves, trying to do to make sure that they stayed healthy and wise and happy. They were still telling people that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. So they hadn't learned their lesson from chapter 12. It was, well, you could say one of the last idols that Abraham is holding on to. And right on the last lap, before Isaac comes, he moves into a new area, and the king of that area named Abimelech, which is probably his title, because Abimelech is translated father of the king, so it might not be his real name, it might be his title, sees Sarah, and he also takes Sarah as his wife. Now that was bad in 12, but it's even worse in 20, and here's why. God has told Abraham that in one year, Sarah's going to have a son. 
What does that mean? That means pretty soon Sarah is going to be fertile for the first time in her life. For the first time in her life, she's going to be able to have a kid. And the exact moment where they could conceive and have a son, she's taken away from Abraham and given to another man. It's almost like God is showing us that everything we do as humans almost seems to fight against God's plan for salvation. Because the seed is not just about having a son. It's, that was God's plan for salvation. The seed leads to Christ. So it was almost like you're saying everything we do is a fight against God's plan for salvation. And if it's ever going to work, God's going to have to show up and do something to fix it. Because Abraham's just messed it up real bad. And so that's when we pick up the story in Genesis 20. And can somebody read for me um, verses 1 through 7? So Abimelech, in verse 2, takes Sarah to be his wife. And where in chapter 12, God sends plagues upon Egypt to tell them that, to let them know, hey, about Sarah. This time, God appears directly to Abimelech in a dream. And the words are startling in the Hebrew because he says, you are a dead man, which was a, it was a statement of fact. So it wasn't like you, he wasn't saying you might be a dead man or you may die soon. He's saying as a statement of fact, you're a dead man now. That's how certain God says his judgment is coming on Abimelech. And why is he saying, saying this judgment is coming? It says because he had taken Sarah to be his wife. And it's interesting that even though he hadn't touched Sarah yet, as the Bible puts it, God still views Abimelech taking Sarah as his wife as a sin worthy of instant death. As still being that sort of an abomination against his plan. Even what? though he didn't know yes. that she was married? Yes, because that's what happens next. Uh, Abimelech kind of defends his case. And he, in verse 4, it's similar to what... Abraham talks about in chapter 18 where Abraham says, are you going to sacrifice the righteous and the wicked at the same time? Abimelech is saying essentially the same thing. Are you going to slay us basically because we're ignorant of what happened? He says, uh, this guy told me he was, my, he was the sister and that he's the brother. And he says, I did this out of innocence in my hands. I did this out of integrity in my heart. In other words, my motives were right. My hands thought they were doing a good thing. He was completely ignorant of the fact that he had married a woman who was still married. 
which is an interesting concept to realize that even though Abimelech was ignorant that what he did was a sin, it still was a sin worthy of death. Because it means that when people don't, because sometimes there's a, it's a, there's a concept about the Bible and about the gospel that if people don't get the chance to hear the gospel at all, then they're not guilty. But God is showing here that even if Abimelech was ignorant, even though he had no idea what he was doing was a sin, it still was a sin and he still had to face judgment from God because it was a sin. So ignorance does not lead you to innocence in God's eyes. But he, God does acknowledge that he didn't do it on purpose. And in fact, he probably looks on that as being good. He, in verse 6, the yes is a very strong affirmative. So God basically saying, yeah, I absolutely, absolutely understand and know that you did this innocently. You did this accidentally and ignorantly. In fact, he says it's because you did it ignorantly that God kept him from doing even more. That God kept him from doing even worse. And that and if there's a miracle other than the fact God's talking to somebody in a dream, that's a miracle in itself. The preventing somebody from sinning further. Um, but because what Abimelech did was still a sin, he still had to make, make it right. He still had to restore Sarah to Abraham. And, and we'll talk about why this is important later. Abraham also had to pray for Abimelech. Abimelech couldn't just pray straight to God and ask for forgiveness and ask for um, restitution. He had to, God had a chosen mediator, which was Abraham, and he had to go through the mediator to get to God. The mediator had to present Abimelech's case before God. And even though Abraham was the one that messed everything up, he was still the mediator and the interceder that God had put on earth. So before we get to the rest of the story, any other comments or questions about the first seven verses? All right, so I read um, verse 8 through 13. 8 through 13. Therefore, Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears. And the men were sore afraid. Then, then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee, that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou? that thou hast done this thing. And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house, 
that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt shew upon unto me at every place whether we shall come, say of me, He is my brother. So verse 8, Abimelech woke up and he told everybody about his dream. And we find out later that's because not just Abimelech, but everybody he was around were being affected uh, because God closed the wombs of all the women in the entire group. And so he told all of them what had happened so they knew. And then he approaches Abraham in verse 9 and his words are showing us that what Abraham did was not right. God is using the words of a, of a pagan king to teach us that Abraham shouldn't have done this. And we see in, in verse 9 in, <clears throat> that even though it says Abraham had done a great sin, it wasn't like Abraham's sin only affected himself. Abraham's sin also affected the people that he was encountering there. It affected Sarah, it affected Bimelech. So what they thought was this innocent little lie they could use to seek protection and they used to seek uh, preservation turned out to be not so innocent of a lie. And it turned out to affect a lot more people than just Abraham and just Sarah. Because Abraham's sin, just like today where somebody else's sin can affect you, Abraham's sin affected Abimelech, even making him guilty before God. And so Abimelech asks him, basically, why did you do this thing? And ironically, Abraham says, I didn't think you feared God. Well, clearly he was wrong. Because Abimelech is looking pretty afraid of God right now. Um, Abraham was wrong in the way he viewed Abimelech. And then you learn in 12 and 13 that Sarah and Abraham, that this is something they've had going along this whole time. Like I said, this almost like an idol that they've kept this through their entire journey. And we find out that he justified it partially because it wasn't a full lie. You know, he almost felt like it was okay. That's what I was going to say. It sounds yeah. like he's trying to justify it. He is. He, he does it. He, does it he, he, he never says you're right, Abimelech, but you can kind of tell he knows he's right. You know, Abraham knows Abimelech is right, that he shouldn't have done it. He's kind of justifying himself, saying it's not a real lie. I mean, she's kind of my sister. She's my half-sister, really. Um, and back in those days, it was common for um, people to raise up to do that with their sister, to strengthen family bonds and that kind of stuff. So he's trying to justify the lie, making it sound like it's not as bad as a lie as he said it was. But even though it wasn't a full lie, I mean, it, you could still see that it was causing problems. And so... What does Abimelech do? Verses 14 through 18. Somebody want to close out the story for us? Yeah, I will. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen, men servants and women servants, and gave them to Abraham, and restored him and Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee. Dwell where it pleases thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee, and with all others. Thus she was reproved. 
So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast clothed all the wounds in the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. All right. So Abimelech does four things here. And it shows something important. It shows that where there's a sin, and in this case, a sin against an individual, that to make that sin right, you can't just reverse what happened, but you have to make what's called restitution. You have to give back what, what was taken, and you have to add something to it. And what you add to it is proportional to how bad the sin is and how bad it is that the person you sinned against. So since Abraham is God's prophet, taking his wife, in this case, required a restitution that was more than just the wife and a thousand pieces of silver. It required a lot more restitution. And so he does four things. First, he gives him animals and servants. And then secondly, he told, tells Abraham, you can live anywhere in my kingdom land that you want. Third, he gives him a thousand pieces of silver, which he says literally for the covering of the eyes that your Bible translated. Uh, basically, it was the idea of when people saw Sarah, they knew that she was, uh, that Abimelech never touched her, basically. That everybody would know that there was nothing that went on between them. And then fourth, he did as God told him to, which is get God's mediator to pray for him to God so that God would forgive him and heal their wounds so that they could have children again. And it's interesting when you think about 17 and 18 for a sec, because the, puni the punishment, if you could use it that, for what Abimelech did was them not having children. Well, that, even though it wasn't a punishment on Sarah, that was the thing they were dealing with. It wasn't a punishment for Sarah, but that was what Sarah was dealing with. And how many times do you think Abraham prayed for Sarah's room to be opened over the course of the last 10 years? Well, there's 365 days in a year times 10 years, you know, probably close to 4,000 times. And God, until this point, hadn't done it yet. But he prays once for this women, this tribe, and every single woman then can have children again. So it's almost... I mean, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. That's a very selfless act to pray for somebody to have something that you haven't had for 10 years, and even though you really wanted it. But he does that anyways for Abimelech, and his prayer works for Abimelech um, the first time. So what an, almost, what an awesome show of God's sovereignty, not just in his sovereignty over death, because he told Abimelech he's a dead man for what he did, but also God's sovereignty over who lives and how people get created. <clears throat> so this is a, a short story. I've got some thoughts and stuff down here, some questions I want to ask. But what comment, thoughts, or questions do y'all have? Yeah. One thing in it, he says, and I wondered this, back when we studied in Sunday school, it was one of my lists that I never got to you. Behold, I have given your brother. He didn't say your husband. Yeah. I've given your brother a mm -hmm. thousand pieces of silver. Yeah. Was that kind of just... I'm sure the word was there intentional. Yeah. Intentionally. I, 
I, I feel like it's, I mean, it's almost like a, like a smack in the face. Because that's like, the way he, this is what you said he was. This is what you said he was. So he's, you know, I'm, we're using the same term you used for who he was. Um, so it's kind of, it's a rebuke to him again for what he was saying. Sister, now yeah. Go back as a sister. Yeah. It's kind of, it's a rebuke to him for the way they were talking about each other. Abimelech didn't know that this was Abraham's wife. Mm-mm. So how did he sin? A sin is a sin, even if you don't realize it's a sin when you do it. So... Even though Abimelech didn't know that taking Sarah as his wife was a sin, it still makes it a sin. If it was true that if you didn't know it was a sin, then it, wouldn't, then it doesn't affect you, then I'm the dumbest person alive for preaching the Bible. Because <laughs> the smartest thing to do is to let nobody know what the Bible says, because then people could sin and they wouldn't be judged, because they didn't know. But God does take into account whether or not you have knowledge of yes. I, if that is taken into account yeah, in your judgment. Yeah, I think so too. I think the Bible clearly shows that there's varying degrees of punishment in eternity, and he does take into account people, like Abimelech said, his ignorance of what was happening. I do believe that. But shouldn't he have been cautious if that was a custom of the day for people to marry their half-brother, who are officially could be their sister or brother? So if that's part of the custom of the day, maybe he should have been more cautious about who he took as a wife. Maybe, but you could also say Abraham could have stopped him. Yeah. <laughs> when, he could say, this is my sister. All right, can I have her as my wife? No, you can't. Never mind, I was lying. You know, he had the chance at that point to stop him, and he yeah. didn't. Uh, I think, I think uh, Jim made that point when we did chapter 12. Like, he didn't even stop him when he, when he came for her. Because Abraham wasn't committing adultery. He wasn't being married to another, to another person's wife. He wasn't committing. His sin was deception. His sin was not adultery. And then Abimelech was the, he, he was the bigamist. Say well, that again. He was the bigamist about being married twice. Yeah. You know, Jim was mentioning to me the other day about polygamy in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, how people would have multiple wives. Obviously, Sarah is old back then, so a lot of people think that this was not about uh, the opposite of chapter 12. Chapter 12, it's clear the Egyptian pharaoh thought she looked beautiful. Here, it mentions nothing about her appearance. So it probably was he wanted her power because Abraham had a lot of stuff. He wanted to be connected to his family. And uh, people did that a lot back then with polygamy. And this is one of those cases where it shows that even though the Bible describes the Old Testament people having multiple wives, it doesn't usually work out for them. In fact, there's not a single place in the Old Testament where having multiple wives made the person's life better. It usually caused more problems for the person. So it doesn't explicitly condemn them for having multiple wives, but you you certainly see an implicit condemnation for this sort of practice. This would be an example of that, you know. If he only had one wife, this would never happen. Abimelech. Look at Solomon. He's the best case of it being of being an implicit condemnation of having multiple wives. Yeah. And probably that uh, 
Abraham hadn't have been married to Sarah, that Abimelech uh, married her, it would be a, a, a total different story in the Bible. Well, it wouldn't have happened way Yeah. And that's why I used to want to have Sarah have more slack in it, have Abraham take more responsibility. But then when we read and restudied this, mm -hmm. it was like she should, by that time, she should have known that God's hand was on her because Abimelech didn't take her as a full-fledged wife. Mm -hmm. He had not touched her yet. So she should have had the confidence to know that God was protecting her. Yeah. And it, it was also like that for a while because the Bible notes it as... Like something that's unusual. So obviously it was like that for some time for them too. I mean, it was, it was clear that, that it was a, a, almost like a miraculous act of God to keep that from happening. Right. But you've been through this twice now. Yeah. I mean, what? <laughs> yeah. And some people, some commentators say that there's a, there's a possibility that Abraham might have saw what happened after Egypt and didn't think it was that bad because the Pharaoh gave him so much stuff afterwards. So he was almost like, well, I did get some things out of it. So maybe it wasn't all that bad. And that's why, and then it comes up again because he's like, well, it's not that bad. I'm going to keep doing it. And then it causes, and this time it's even worse, like I said, because of the timing of when that happens. And in terms of the promised child being about to be conceived during that time. What does this passage tell us about God? That his plan for us does not change. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how long it takes. Yeah. I wrote down a few, some of them I've already mentioned, but I didn't mention the last one. Uh, there's obviously ones like God wants us to be obedient and not lie. I mean, that one's pretty obvious from this one. Um, you know, that God takes adultery seriously, even in a case like this. Um, that God has the, the authority to create life and also to, to kill, people, kill life and judgment. Um, it's an interesting study in how God treats guilt and innocence, as Jim was bringing out, that or ignorance, you could say, how God deals with people who are ignorant of sin, but how that still makes them guilty of sin, and how God treats people who are ignorant of what they're doing. But I think the main, the main point, I think, this passage is we have to remember that, that the child, Isaac, doesn't just represent a child for Abraham. The child, when we say he's the child of promise, we're saying that God's plan was for there to be a way to get saved. And that plan hinged on that child coming from Isaac. So Isaac had to be born in order for Jesus to be born. So it's more than just Abraham and Sarah wanting a kid. It's about how is God going to save the world from their sins? And is that plan of salvation going to get messed up in step one? You know, if it's a board, like a board game, is the first step going to mess up the whole board game? You go to jail and you can't, you can't win. And so we see in this story that uh, what I think is the main point is that we need to trust God's ability to preserve eternal salvation instead of relying on human schemes to preserve our eternal salvation.
Sarah and Abraham, they were lying because they were basically trying to help God make sure they don't die. If they die, the promise is over. And so they were trying to help God's plan of salvation work. And God is trying to show them people are saved as an act of God's grace and power, not because of an act of humans trying to make salvation work. And it was by trying to make salvation work that they actually got into more trouble than if they just trusted God's grace in the first place. And so I feel the, the, when we think about in terms of the scope of the Bible and what Isaac means beyond just being a child, I feel like we've got to think of this in terms of salvation and how God preserves salvation for us and that we don't need human schemes to help God do that. Well, God's plan for salvation started with Adam and Eve. Yeah, Genesis 3.15. Yeah. You know, uh, Adam, Adam and Eve's uh, uh, what God did for them wasn't near what was a whole lot worse than what Abraham did. He didn't he didn't put it on Abraham like he did on Adam. Yeah. Well, Adam brought sin into the whole world. Abraham just brought sin to Abimelech. So Adam had a little bit worse sin. <laughs> uh, uh, not just human world. He brought sin to like all of nature and everything. So, um, so how? Where? What does this passage speak about Jesus? How does this passage point us to Jesus? Uh, I mean, right away. Multiple. Well, there's a couple different ways. One, yeah. um, you know, you see God's sovereignty for uh, keeping an Emily, um from touching Sarah. You see the Holy Spirit restraining. Yeah. Um, also, I think it's interesting that um, Abimelech has to have Abraham as his mediator mm-hmm. right before to God, whereas we can pray directly to Jesus or, or to God Himself mm-hmm. because the veil's been torn for us. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. You know, we have one mediator in that land, Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I think that's the best way this passage points to Jesus is to show us that we need a mediator, but that mediator for us is Jesus, not a person. And so you have passages like Romans, because of time, we don't have to turn to them, but Romans 8, 34, 1 John 2, 1, Hebrews 7, 25, that all describes Jesus as being that intermediator between us and God. And one of the things that Jesus did for us on the cross was not just forgive us of our sins, but became that person that can reconcile us with God. Because we also have to remember, just like Abimelech had to turn in a whole ton of stuff to Abraham to make things right, that was based on how big Abraham was as a prophet of God. If it was that much stuff for one sin to a prophet of God, how much do you owe God if it's God instead of a prophet and a lifetime of sin instead of one sin? Think how much restitution you have to pay. The way we say it is the restitution to God for our sin is infinite because it's an infinite God we've harmed. And so why it had to be Christ that paid that restitution is because Christ is God and he's man, as God, he can pay an infinite restitution for us. And as man, he can do it in our place. That's why it had to be God. And so he's our intermediator between us and God, but he's the perfect intermediator because he paid the restitution we could never pay back to God for our sins. And that's why we need Jesus and no other way gets us there but Jesus. And it's retroactive. Yes. 
in this chapter here, uh, uh, the, between Abimelech and Abraham, God promised uh, would have probably buried a little bit had it not come to pass in this respect, and uh, Abimelech uh, didn't give Sarah back to him and didn't touch her. Yeah, well, I think if Sarah... That, uh, and the promise of the seed uh, for Abraham would have been affected some way, wouldn't it? It might have, but I think God, I think God tells us how he was going to deal with the situation if Abimelech didn't give him back. That was he was going to kill Abimelech. Yeah. So God was going to give Sarah back to yeah, Abraham, either with Abimelech alive or Abimelech dead. But Sarah was going back to Abraham one way or the other. To me, he closed up all the wounds, so nobody had gotten to yeah. her. Yeah. Her, he, her wound would have been closed anyway. Probably. And his, uh, uh, the, um, by closing the wound of all, that would have stopped that nation from growing. Mm-hmm. He would have died away. Yeah. Well, God, God knew what was going to happen. Oh, yeah. He already he knew. God knew in advance, just like He does our lives. Yeah. God already knew how it was going to turn He also out. knew what He had to say. He knew how it was going to turn out. Very right. humbling for Abraham, too, to have to be that mediator. Yes. Don't you think so? Very humbling. Because, yes. like Pastor said, the wounds, he, he was praying for somebody else to, for their their life to go on and continue to have children, and that when that's what had been his prayer. Mm-hmm. So it was like ultimately, now, it. You have to almost think if I'm good that not ever have that, I pray for this for the other fellow. Yeah. Foreshadow of the priest. To be selfless. Yeah. Let me pray and we'll close out today at 735. So dear God, thank you for this story. And it's uh, certainly an interesting story, but has such a powerful message of your judgment on sin, but also your grace through an intermediator and the way that ultimately shows up in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would just catch the glory of what you've done for us and provide that intermediator, what you, the glory of what you did to make sure that promise sustained itself throughout thousands of years there. And um, God, I pray that you would help us just to capture that in some praise and our love for you and our love for Christ this week. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.